Hey, Shauna. Hello, everybody. Good to see you. You look marvelous, lovely. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church. And uh, what we do here is nothing fancy. We just worship God passionately and then get into His Word passionately. And that's what we're about to do. Um, just before I came up here, my, my wonderful wife pointed out that my one sock is inside out. So, so don't notice that, okay? I just want to make sure that you weren't being distracted by one of the socks being inside out. But if you would have known how I dressed before I met my lovely wife, uh, this is a massive improvement. Uh, used to be I'd have two different shoes and not notice it. I mean, it was, it was bad. So I am so normal now compared to what I used to be. All right. We are studying the uh, book of Luke, of course, and we're all the way up to chapter 23. We're looking at the trial of Jesus. Now, I want to title this message, uh, The Great Exchange, uh, and you'll see why here in a moment. Luke 23, and we're going to read uh, 12 verses. I'll make a few comments as we're doing that. Let me pray first. Father, thank you for uh, the spirit that is here, your spirit that was so present in the worship and the joy that is present here. Help us, Lord, as we're listening to your word to stay present, to stay open, to hear your word. Let your word, God, find uh, lodging in our heart and and minister in any way that we need it. Maybe it's confrontation, maybe it's encouragement, maybe it's healing. Do your work, Lord. Let your word go forth and not return void. Do all that you will to accomplish with it. But that's about you, not me. So we just relax in your sufficiency. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to you, to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, here's my proposal, I'll punish him or flog him and then release him. Uh, just pause for a moment. Pilate here is just playing politics. Uh, he's doing a, a sort of first century version of an opinion poll. He's testing the crowd. He, 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 we'll see this throughout this whole thing. He's undoubtedly heard about the, the crowds that were just adoring Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem a week earlier. So he doesn't want to do anything that's going to incite people to a riot or something. On the other hand, he's got a little bit of a riot on his hands here if he doesn't do something. So he proposes a middle ground. How about if I just beat him up, you know? And he's trying to placate the different crowds. He's got his finger to the wind. And he's, he's, he's just testing uh, the, 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 the sort of where the people are at. He's not concerned with justice. Now, it'll become clear in a moment that he does want to let Jesus go. And he, he thinks Jesus is innocent. Maybe flaky, but, but not guilty of any crime. That may partly be because we learned from John that his wife the night before had had a dream about Jesus and uh, regarding his innocence. Uh, so he wants to let uh, Jesus go, but his concern isn't justice. If his concern was justice and he believed Jesus was innocent, well, then he wouldn't flog him. And he certainly wouldn't crucify him just because that's what the opinion poll says to do. So he, he's just playing the politician here. Then going on, it says, With one voice, the crowd cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us instead. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Uh, what this is about is that for a short period of time, Pilate, to try to keep good relationships with the Jewish people, he would on Passover show his good benevolent will by releasing whatever prisoner they chose. Most of them were there for some kind of political insurrection or whatever. So it was a way of trying to uh, you know, show them that he's a nice guy. 
the crowd insists on having Barabbas rather than Jesus. Now, it's important to understand this, that the crowd's behavior throughout this whole episode, and we'll see more about it here in a second, um, they're always saying, crucify Jesus. Uh, we want Barabbas, you know, he crucified Jesus. And Pilate's saying, why, why, why? That, that part of what's called the passion narrative, the, the trial and execution of Jesus, has been used throughout history on the part of Christians to justify anti-Semitism, which is having an, uh, a, a prejudice towards or a hostile attitude towards Jewish people. They've been depicted as Christ killers because of this passage. Look at it. They, they were the ones who got Christ crucified. Now, I, I, we need to dispel that absurdity once and for all. It's, it, it's been heinous throughout history. Whenever terrible things have happened to Jewish people, uh, the, many Christians have said, Oh, look at God's punishing them for what they did to Jesus. This passage does not justify, and no passage justifies that attitude. First of all, this crowd does not represent what all... Jewish people in the first century, let alone Jewish people throughout history, believe. It's a small crowd. This is a meeting in the, in the early morning. It's a town hall meeting. Only those people who know about it show up. Jesus was arrested late in the night, the night before. Most people don't know about this. This wasn't a random, you know, fair selection of, of the populace. In all likelihood, this crowd, which is probably, you know, in this kind of town meeting early in the morning, would have had 50 to 100, maybe 200 people at the most. So it's not like thousands. And they probably were handpicked by the Jewish authorities who have been setting this thing up uh, for the last week and actually going back further than that. Uh, so, so this is a handpicked crowd. It could possibly be that some of these folks were bribed uh, to be very loud in, in this kind of gathering. But more important than that, theologically, we need to understand that Jesus died for the sins of the world. We all put Christ on the cross. He died for all of us, and so it's, his death isn't something you can pin on the Jewish people or the Irish people or the Chinese people or the Japanese people or any particular people group. It's not a race thing or ethnic thing. It's a human thing. He died for the entire human race. And so this anti-Semitic attitude is just not at all based in Scripture, and we've got to be done with it once and for all. Okay, moving on. It says, wanting to release Jesus, probably because of his wife's dream, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll flog him and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate, not caring a bit about justice, Decided to grant their demand, he released the the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, Barabbas, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. There is, the part of the passage I want to pay attention to is this exchange that happens, where Barabbas gets set free, set free, and Jesus is condemned. Though Barabbas is guilty of insurrection and murder, he is released Jesus, though he's innocent, in fact, he's the innocent son of God, he's crucified. The innocent dies in the place of the guilty. And even though that exchange was done for strictly political reasons on the part of Pilate, it actually speaks to, looks forward to, anticipates the core of the gospel. One who was completely sinless died on behalf of those who were completely guilty that those who are completely guilty could be saved, could be set free. It's at the heart, it's the most beautiful, shocking 
unfathomable aspect of the gospel. It's captured perhaps in its purest form in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, to be sin for us. He made made him our sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God himself. There is at the core of the gospel this fantastic, significant exchange where he takes on our sin and exchange we get his righteousness. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you've probably heard that message before. Maybe dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, and maybe that's part of the problem, because here's the thing. While we believe that to be true, this this incredible exchange, it's hard for that to get on the inside of us. If this message gets on the inside of us, it changes everything, how we view God, how we view ourselves, how we live our life. The trouble is it's very easy for that teaching, as profound and beautiful as it is, to stay in our head and not get on the inside, not get in our heart, not, not penetrate our soul where it actually transforms the way we live moment by moment. My goal here this morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is, is to uh, try to open up our hearts for this teaching, this beauty to get on the inside, where it can begin to do its redeeming, transforming work. There are, I believe, two major obstacles that keep us from fully entering into the beauty and the joy and the transforming power of this teaching, this great exchange. The first obstacle is this. According to this teaching, we are standing in the place of Barabbas, and Jesus dies that Barabbas, us, can go free. The obstacle is that most of us don't feel like Barabbas. We don't feel that bad. Now, there are some people who beat themselves up too much, for sure. But the majority of us we know we're not perfect. We, we know that we've got faults, but we don't feel like we deserve death. We don't feel like we deserve hell. We don't feel like we're under the judgment of God apart from Christ. We, 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 we may not be perfect, but we're actually pretty good. Part of the problem is that we compare ourselves with others. We look around, you know, and, and I look around the auditorium right now, and I can say to myself, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm, I'm not as bad as that person or, or, or that person, or, you know, we're not going to name any names, Charlie, but, but I, I'm not nearly as sinful as that person. I'm not a Hitler or a Stalin or Mussolini, so we feel pretty good by comparison. And then on top of that, uh, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's certain sin cravings that you have that you suppress, and, and we feel kind of righteous about that. Man, I don't sin nearly as much as I'd like to, and so we feel righteous. So yes, we may not be perfect, but, but we don't feel like, like we're really in grave danger apart from Christ. And see, here's the thing. To the extent that we don't feel the gravity of our situation apart from Christ, to that degree, we don't feel gratitude for our situation with Christ. Our, our ability to feel grateful for what we've been rescued from totally hangs on, on how serious we thought our situation was that we needed to be rescued from. We don't feel like we are in the position of Barabbas. Now, here's the problem. Our feelings are not reliable guides at all as to what is accurate in the world. How you feel about something is no indication of what you, whether or not your feelings are true. How you feel about something at any particular moment is a function largely of brain chemistry, how, how your neurons happen to be popping at that moment. It's a function of your education. It's a function of your culture. It's a function of your life experience. It's a function of a lot of things that have nothing to do with truth. How you feel 
There's no indication, not a reliable guide as to what is real. I, I uh, read a study, I've shared this before, but it was about 15 years ago now, where they, they did a study on, on trying to, to show the relationship between uh, performance on math uh, tests and self-esteem. And they examined, I think it was 12 or 14 different countries. American kids did the worst on the math test, but felt the best about it. (laughs) Japanese kids did the best on the math test, but felt the worst about it. And the reason is because there's just different cultures going on. In America, you show up at class, you get a smiley face. Oh, Johnny showed up. Oh, what 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 a guy. Whereas in traditional Japanese culture, you get one wrong and you feel shame for it. See, how you feel is, is, is really an arbitrary kind of contingent thing. It's not a reliable guide as to uh, what's going on in the world. It's possible to be totally deceived by your feelings. When I was a, a kid, uh, for two years straight, age ni- 18 and 19, I would go backpacking in Montana. Um, there was a, I, I looked at it on a map and, and to find out what, 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 what is the most uncharted primitive forest territory to go to. And at that time, it was this uh, place called, uh, in southern Montana, Beartooth uh, uh, Forest. And uh, it was just north of, of Yellowstone. And I would go out there for to, oh, anywhere from 18 to 20 days, all by myself. I would just uh, take you know, three weeks worth of food, put it in a backpack, most of it's freeze-dried food. I had a little tube tent, and I would just go out into that forest. It never occurred to me that there was any danger in that. <laughs> I wouldn't tell anyone where I was going. I, just, I, I, would, I would park my car from Cook City and just start walking. I'd get lost for 10 days and then spend the next 10 days you know, trying to find my way out. And, and that was an adventure. But it never occurred to me that there was any danger in that. I didn't care if, carry a flare gun. If I would have broken my leg or something would have happened out there, <laughs> no one would know where I'm at. You know, it never occurred to me that I could die out there. I never carried any kind of pepper spray or a mace or a gun. And the place is infested. Well, it's called Beartooth Range, you know. <laughs> Hello? But it, I'm told that, you know, your frontal lobe cortex that deals with rational processing and consequences doesn't fully develop to your 21, and I so believe that. I was totally oblivious. One time in the second year I was out there, I was walking to the top of this mountain uh, that was the highest peak in this whole range, and there's a lake on top of there, and I wanted to you know, hang out there for a day or two, so I'm walking up uh, this little path in the forest, and normally I would go the whole three weeks and not see anybody. But as I was walking up there, a forest ranger on a horse was coming down the other direction. And uh, he says, are you going to, uh, to the top of that mountain? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, you might want to think about that again. We just dropped an angry grizzly bear up there. Um, it was hassling some people in, in uh, uh, Yellowstone Park. And so this is where we always drop those angry bears. Uh, we, we, by helicopter, we just shipped it down here. So about one and a half miles up there, there is a very angry bear. You might want to think about camping somewhere else. And then he says to me, uh, are you carrying a piece? I said, a piece of what? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I he, goes, he shows me his pistol. You, 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 don't have, you don't have a gun up here? This is bear country, kid. He goes, you, tell me you at least have some mace. And it's like, no, I don't have any mace or pepper spray or anything. He goes, well, you're wearing your bells. I go, what do you, I look like Tinkerbell or something? I, but he says, you got to wear bells because otherwise you're going to startle the bears and then you're really in trouble. And I didn't have any bells. I was totally oblivious to the... I saw bear tracks. I even heard growls now and then, but it never occurred to me that they would go after me. It's a little me. 
I was a totally idiot, basically. I just didn't have a clue. A couple days later, honestly, I was walking in through this valley. It was very tall grass. You couldn't even see a few feet in front of you. As I'm kind of just going through this, this, this grass, I come upon this humongous moose. I mean, five feet away. I turn the corner, and there's this giant head. The head was enormous. His antlers going out. And my only concern was to reach back and get my camera before I lost this photo on moose. Don't move moose, you know. I thought all moose were like Rocky and Bullwinkle. They're nice, cute animals. That's how they are in the zoo. And so I, I just wanted to get a snapshot. And I really didn't know until a couple of years ago, watching this news uh, uh, thing, where those are dangerous animals. In Canada, they've killed a bunch of people. They've been moving, going into these more inhabited areas. And they had a video. You can get it on YouTube of this moose that gets startled by this guy and kills him. He just tramples him to death. I was in grave danger, five feet away, startled a moose, and I'm worried about a Kodak moment. You know, what's wrong with this picture? How we feel is not a reliable guide as to what is actually going on in the world at all. And so it may surprise us. We, 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 we don't feel that bad, most of us. We, sin isn't that big of a deal to us. Uh, and we can be intellectually grateful that Jesus died for us, but it doesn't feel like that monumental of a thing. But see... The Bible paints a very, very different picture. The forest ranger comes and gives us an authoritative word about the reality of the situation that we're in. Jesus tells us that every sinful thought and every sinful word separates us from God and puts us in danger of judgment. Lusting in our heart, having anger and wrath in our, in, in our heart, puts us in danger of judgment. The Bible says that apart from God, and this will strike us maybe as extreme because we're so acclimated to the darkness of this world, but the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we are at war with God. We're in bondage to Satan. We're headed for destruction. We're, 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 we're bondage to sin. We're dead in our sin. We're slaves to sin. We're in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And the reality is that we need to ask God to open up our heart to see the gravity of our situation apart from Christ. Even if you're already a Christian, see, unless we can appreciate how far gone we were apart from Christ, we'll never have that full transforming gratitude that we ought to have now that we're no longer apart from Christ but belong to Him. Feelings are not a reliable guide. So we need to ask God to really show us the reality of the situation that we're in. I was lost, but now I'm found. That's got to mean a lot. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was destined for destruction, but now I'm destined for eternal life with Jesus Christ. Amen. And see, if you see that, if that gets on the inside, if that becomes a reality, not just a head thing, but a reality, whoa, then you become grateful for every breath you breathe. And, and you just look at life and live life a little bit differently. So the first obstacle has to do that we, we trust our feelings too much on this. The second obstacle is this. To a lot of people, and I'm in this camp, used to be in this camp, this whole message of salvation, this whole message of the great exchange just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, like why did Jesus have to die for me to be saved? Um, how does his death save me? Uh, I, you can't connect the dots there and see that for some people it makes it harder for it to get on the inside and, and feel like a, a real, real thing. Part of the problem, as I've shared before, so I'm just going to mention this. Part of the problem is that we tend to frame, we in the West anyways, tend to frame the whole discussion about how Jesus saves us in in a sort of legal paradigm, a court of law paradigm. And so God is sort of the judge and and, and we're the defendants and, and, and the judge pronounces us guilty and condemned, but then Jesus is our lawyer and Jesus comes there and says, no, dad, the judge, uh, don't punish them, punish me instead. And somehow that acquits us and gets us off the hook. And that's how a lot of people think about salvation. 
But that like screws around with your head if you start thinking about it too much. It, it just raises a whole lot of questions. Like, like um, how is God just for punishing his son for what we did? And how does that get us off the hook and reconcile us with God if we are in fact still, still sinners? And does God really forgive anybody if he actually gets, he exacts his payment, he gets paid in full. It's just that his son pays it instead of us. Well, then does he really you know, forgive us? Um, and, and it doesn't just kind of posit sort of a split personality in God. You got God the Father who's this judge and he's wrathful towards us and, and, and he just assumes send us to hell. But Jesus comes in and says, no, Dad, punish me instead. And isn't that kind of like a form of child abuse? You know, that he's going to take it out. Some people ask me that. Isn't that child abuse to punish your son for what somebody else did? And the thing is, the Bible says that Jesus on the cross reveals the love of God the Father. He doesn't conceal the wrath of God the Father. So it raises all sorts of, I think, quite unanswerable questions, which makes it harder for the beauty of this great exchange to get on the inside of us. And so I submit we should see it in a little different light. See it not in terms of a court of law, but rather in terms of a covenant of love, a marriage sort of covenant. And the way Jesus takes upon our sin and we take on his righteousness is the kind of thing that happens in a marriage, a one-flesh relationship. Now, to get at that, I want to I draw an analogy, and it comes from a movie. Uh, the movie is What Dreams May Come, uh, starring Robin Williams. It is a, I've got to set up the clip here uh, a little bit. It's a mediocre movie. It's got some nice scenery, but it, otherwise fairly mediocre, and it's got some terrible theology. I mean, some really bad theology. I'm not endorsing the theology of this thing. But it's got one profound, correct piece of theology, and that's the piece I'm going to share with you this morning. Set up this clip. It's a story about Christy, a guy named Christy, interestingly enough, and his wife. And they were madly in love and had an ideal dream life going and kids and everything was going wonderful. But then tragedy struck. Uh, One of the children died. And the wife, for some reason, blamed herself and went into a state of despair and ended up in the psych ward. And Christy, played by Robin Williams, the way he dealt with pain, and this is the way a lot of men tend to deal with pain, is you become more invulnerable. And so he could not enter into his wife's despair. He couldn't join her in that despair and actually gave up on her while she was in the psych ward or came very close to that. They managed to stay married, but before too long, he ended up being killed in a car wreck. And somehow his wife blamed herself for that as well. Now, he died and went to heaven. And it's a Hollywood heaven. There's no God or Jesus there, but there's a lot of nice flowers, so that's okay. And, and so he dies and goes to heaven, but this being a movie that has some bad theology, she commits suicide and therefore goes to hell. And I was impressed that a Hollywood movie even would have a hell, but they got that from uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, not, and not, not the Bible. But because they were so close in life and they're soulmates, the, 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 the husband in heaven learns, knows that his wife has died and gone to hell. And so he basically says, I gave up on her once, but I can't give up on her again. I have to go and get her. He's told that you can't do that. It's impossible. It's never been done before. But he insists. He's compelled by love. I can't do otherwise. I have to find her. And so he goes over a lot of obstacles and finds his way to, to her particular hell. Now, in hell, people are frozen in their nightmare eternally, according to this movie. And so he's told that your wife won't even recognize you. And to make matters worse, it, once you go in within one minute, you can't come out. You will be sucked into her nightmare, and, and uh, there's no going back. So you're forsaking heaven and entering into hell for one minute of conscious joining with her. But he says, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. And so 
We pick this uh, show up right where it is here. He's, he's now at the door of his wife's hell. He's got one minute before hell starts encroaching on him. Let's watch the clip. Where are we headed, babe? In one minute, I won't know you any better than you'll know me. But we'll be together. Where we belong. Good people end up in hell because they can't forgive themselves. No, I can't. But I can forgive you. For killing my children. And my sweet husband. Being so wonderful, a guy would choose hell over heaven just to hang around you. Oh, God, no, 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 no. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up, Christine. Christine, don't give up. Don't, don't, don't. Don't give up. Christine! Christine, Christine, Sometimes when you lose, you win. (laughs) 
travel here is like everything else. It's in your mind. All you have to do is close your eyes. If you know where you're going. Looks like we did. You were. I tried everything, nothing worked. Until you tried joining me. Until you tried joining me. I tried everything, it didn't work. Until you tried joining me. See, the point of that is it just captures something about uh, love, certainly about God's love. Love joins the other, even in their hell. And the process of entering in, identifying with their hellish situation, you redeem them out of hell. And then, for human beings, you help redeem the other person out of their hell. Love is redemptive. And see, that is, I think, exactly the situation that God is in in relationship to this world. From the beginning, the point was to join. God wanted to join himself to us. He created this world uh, that he would have a bride that he could join himself to. And uh, he would court humanity for a little while, and then there'd come a point where he would enter into humanity and uh, uh, join uh, himself with humanity that we could join ourselves with him. And then share and the, the, the dance of the triune God and the rule of the triune God. The incarnation was the goal from the start. God was going to have a bride. But unfortunately, we individually and collectively rebelled against God. We said no to his courtship. We sinned. We wanted to be Lord of our own life. We put ourselves uh, uh, into Satan's bondage. And so instead of being conduits by which God's will gets done on earth as it is in heaven, we become conduits by which Satan's will gets done on earth as it is in hell. That's why the world is so screwed up. That's why society is so screwed up. We became a rebellious bride. But see, that didn't... Cause God to quit. God doesn't give up. He's a passionate God of unwavering love, and he he kept pursuing us. And he was going to go forward with his plan of uniting himself with the bride, despite the fact that the bride has made herself dirty, despite the fact that the bride has become rebellious and is in bondage. It's just that now, for God to unite himself to the bride means you have to unite yourself to her bondage and her sin and her rebellion and her dirt. You want, if you want the bride, well, she comes with this package. And yet God was willing to do that, entering into not only our humanity, which was the plan all along, but entering into our sin and into our rebellion and taking that upon himself, owning it for himself in order to redeem us out of it. It's not that different from a normal marriage, if you think about it. When two people get married, uh, everything that belongs to that other person, for better or for worse, becomes yours. When you say yes, you don't get to pick and choose to marry the good parts of the person and, and leave the other stuff at the door. Maybe we wish it was that way, but it ain't that way. No, when you, when you become one flesh, now every psychological, emotional, physical problem that person has, every issue they have is now yours. You just identified with that. Um, you bear their wounds, you bear their sins. And, and that, that, that's part of what the love covenant is all about. When Shelly married me, and I married Shelly, she didn't just marry the, you know, the, the funny and romantic and intelligent and spunky and you know, charismatic guy. No, no, she married that guy with all the baggage. 
No, I had very little baggage, of course. Yeah, very, very little. Um, but still, there was some baggage that went with that. And to marry Greg is to marry the whole Greg, not just the good parts of Greg, but the history Greg, all the wounds and scars that are there. And so when she joins herself to me, she joins herself to some of the scars that come from child abuse. And it means she commits to loving me, even though I had trouble being vulnerable. She commits to loving me despite the fact that I had trouble getting in touch with my feelings because I spent a whole lot of my life just trying to ignore those and suppress those. I mean, she commits to loving me, even though I had a tendency to hide my inner self because I thought it was too bizarre and people would think I'm insane if I let them on the inside of my world. She commits to loving me, even though I had, because of the history and the scars, an inclination to hide my weaknesses and, and, and hide my shame. And see, in the process of loving me, in the midst of all that baggage, that's one of the ways that God used her to free me from the baggage. Spouses always bear one another's sins and wounds, but when we commit to loving unconditionally in the midst of that, it's one of the ways we get healed from our scars and wounds and freed from our sin. When when, when you're loved unconditionally in, uh, in the midst of your baggage, you learn that you're not your baggage. Your baggage doesn't define you. You've got a self that is lovable apart from the baggage, and that's part of what frees you to put down that baggage. And then to begin to move forward. Love is, in that sense, redemptive. When you enter into the hell of another person's life well, that's, and love them unconditionally in the midst of that, it's one of the ways that God uses to begin to free them from their hell. That is what God does with us. Jesus Christ dives into our sin, dives into our bondage, dives into our rebellion, dives into our hell, takes it upon himself. That's what the cross is all about. And in the process of that, redeems us from that bondage and from that hell. He marries this bride, the whole bride, with all the warts, with all the dirt, with all the sin. His love is not thwarted by that. Paul gets at this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says this, he's talking to the husbands because husbands in the first century have all the power, so they have to initiate submission. And so he says to the husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Christ didn't love us because we were holy. He loved us despite the fact that we weren't holy. And in the course of loving us despite the fact that we're not holy, he makes us holy. His love washes us. It purifies us. It redeems us. And then Paul goes on to quote Genesis 2. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, joined, to his wife, the whole wife, not just the good parts, joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Your stuff becomes my stuff, my stuff becomes your stuff. This is a profound mystery, this one flesh reality. It's a mystery even on a marital level, but Paul says it's even more mysterious because I'm talking about Christ and the church. Christ becomes one, there's something like a marriage, one flesh relationship that Christ has with his bride. And the blessings go both ways. He blesses us, and we bless him for the joy set before me endured the suffering of the cross. We delight his heart. He gets something out of this. The blessings go both ways. But unlike human marriages where the sin and the wound go both ways, in this case, it only goes one way. When two humans get married, they both bring baggage into the relationship, and they both have to be redeemed out of that. But here, while the blessings go both ways, We don't bear Christ's sin because he has none, but he bears our sin. And this is why it's such a great exchange. God, in his unfathomable love, he joins himself to our sin that we can now be joined to his righteousness. 
That's the great exchange. He, in his unfathomable love, joins himself to our bondage to Satan that we might then be joined to his freedom and live lives eternally that are free from bondage. He joins himself to our ugliness that we might share in his, his beauty. He joins himself to our shame that we might share in his glory for all eternity. That's the great exchange. He dives into our hell that we can eternally participate in his heaven. That's the great exchange. He takes the place of the guilty Barnabas so the guilty Barnabas can be set free and transformed. That is the great exchange. And folks, that's what salvation is all about. It's not some legal courtroom thing that goes on. No, it's the reality of God's unconquerable love coming and rescuing a bride who could deserve it less and transforming her and liberating her in the process. Salvation is about the unconquerable love of God that does not say no. And when all the demons in hell say it's impossible to redeem this kind of a bride, no, no, with God all things are possible. And he dives into our hell, dives into our bondage, dives into our sin, takes it upon himself to redeem us, to cleanse us. It's an unconquerable love of God that will not say no. It will not be thwarted. Our sin isn't big enough to get in the way of his love. Satan's not big enough to get in the way of his love. Our bondage is not big enough to get in the way of his love. It's an unconquerable love. It's an unthwartable love. It's a love that doesn't give up. It's a love we can't conceive of because it has no height limit, depth limit, width limit. No, it just goes on and on and on. He dives in and takes our stuff upon himself that everything that belongs to him by nature can become ours by grace. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. What an exchange. It it doesn't get more beautiful than that. It doesn't get more profound than that. It's mind-boggling. And see, if that gets on the inside, if that gets on the inside, really, well, it it just changes everything. It just changes how you view everything, how you experience life. It can't help but fill your life with complete love and gratitude. Paul, in fact, in the same place where he says that God made him to be no sin, that we could become his righteousness, he says this in in 2 Corinthians 5, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. That's Jesus. And therefore all died. All the human beings were included in this. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul saying, in light of the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us, in light of the truth of where we would be without Jesus, in light of the beauty of God displayed in his rescuing this undeserving bride, we're compelled by the love of God. He entered into our death that we can now eternally enter into his life. How can we possibly then go on living for ourselves? If that's on the inside, then it means that Every breath we breathe has to be breathed with gratitude for the Christ who redeemed us, who is willing to pay any price on our behalf. To live a life, to, 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 to express to God our gratitude for what he's done for us. But it's got to get on the inside to do that. So I end with these two questions. First of all, if you're here or listening through podcast or any other means, and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm not asking do you believe in Jesus. You can intellectually believe mean little. Are you following him? And if you're not following him, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, then I want you to hear this word. You are in grave danger. You are in grave danger. Take it on the authority of the forest ranger. You are surrounded by danger. You're on a road that heads for destruction. And the reality is you need Jesus Christ. He died for you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past is. I don't care how, how, how bad it has been. 
it doesn't matter. He, he, he's already united himself, himself with your death. The question is, is, will you surrender to his life? Because it has to be chosen. He won't coerce you. You have to say, yes, I will no longer live for myself. I will live for you. And if you're in that situation, I want to encourage you at the end of the service. We'll have a prayer team up here. I want to encourage you to come forward and tell these people about a decision you want to make. To start following Jesus. There's no magic here. There's not like some kind of a, you know, acquittal prayer. No, no, it's about a decision to start walking a different way of life. And I, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or even if you are, but you're still kind of confused about stuff, I want to encourage you to take this class that Paul Eddie and I are teaching, uh, Discover Jesus, and start learning about what it is to live the Christian life and to live in the kingdom. And then at the right time, when you really see this, I encourage you to then join yourself to the bride. And you do that through baptism. That's your wedding ceremony. And now you're officially part of the, the bride of Christ. But start walking in that way. For others who are here listening through podcasts or some other means, and you are a follower of Jesus, I just ask you this question. Have you been taking it for granted? Have you, have you let it on the inside? Is it on the inside now? And if it's not... You can't will your way into that, into a new frame of mind, but you can pray. Father, the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, Lord, open the eyes of our heart. Lord, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of my heart that I could see the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God that passes all knowledge. Ask God to open up your heart to really see the gravity of where you were apart from Christ. Not to have remorse or regret or beat yourself up. No, just to, to appreciate where you are now. Only, you can only live in appreciation to the degree that you realize where you were going apart from him. Ask God to remind you, remember where you were, where you were going. And then remind yourself of the beauty of the God who dove into your hell to bring you into his heaven. That's the great exchange. Ask God to show you that. I encourage you to, to uh, uh, go through the homework that's in the bulletin. I don't write that homework, uh, but it, it, it's an outstanding homework. It, it, it's a good way of giving you a visual reminder of what all this involves. And so I'm going to end in prayer as I do. I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here and would like to start your walk with God or have any other need that you'd need to have prayed for, I encourage you to spend some time with these folks. But I pray, Father, thank you. We can't begin to, I don't think, really comprehend the, the full beauty of what you have done for us which is to say we can't comprehend fully your beauty, but we do believe it. We accept it. We receive it. And we pray, Lord God, that you would open our eyes. Help us never to become calloused. Help us to never take this for granted. God, fill our hearts with gratitude and a compulsion of love to live for you moment by moment, to be grateful for every single thing we have that comes from you, but most of all, grateful that we who were once were lost are now found and are destined for an entirely different place. And God, out of that gratitude and love, God, help it to overflow in our life to every single person we come in contact with, that we can be conduits for your loving will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's kingdom people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out and overflow on the world.